Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week I sit down with Laurel Fletcher, Director of the International Human Rights Law Clinic and Law Professor at the University of California, Berkeley. During our conversation, Laurel talks about the history of the Guantanamo Bay Prison, her book, Guantanamo and Its Aftermath, and Guantanamo's impact on many of its current and former detainees. Welcome to the show. Today I'm in Berkeley, California with Berkeley Law Professor Laurel Fletcher. And Laurel, thank you for taking the time to talk to the listeners about uh, your professional background in in Guantanamo. Uh, Welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'd like to start by learning a little bit about how you got interested in the subject of the Guantanamo prison. Um, Was there a time in your life when that subject became particularly interesting to you and you knew that it was something that you wanted to dedicate some of your academic interest in learning about and researching? I don't know that any American or person living in the United States or affected by U.S. policy after 9-11 that wasn't in some way affected by those events. Mm. Um, And I sit here in the university and I direct uh, an international human rights law clinic which uses the resources, intellectual resources, of a world-class research university and the practical skills of exceptionally talented law students at a top 10 um, law school Mm -hmm. in service and promotion of human rights protections. So that's what I do. When the news about how the United States was responding to the attacks um, uh, uh, on the United States um, after 9-11 by resorting to a new interpretation of international law, which justified the capture of the so-called um, enemy combatants, right? A, an entirely new category in international law, to take those men, take them, remove them um, in Afghanistan, put them in a legal timeout zone for purposes of... Um, preventing them, essentially from preventing them for, you know, rejoining the fight against the United States Mm -hmm. uh, was just simply unprecedented Mm -hmm. and deeply disturbing. Mm -hmm. The opportunity to get involved in that didn't emerge right away. I mean, so first of all, you have to like, I think now it's probably hard to remember back that there was this time when we didn't really know what was going on, right? There was a tremendous amount of fear Mm. Um, we, uh, and, you know, the first group of, first wave of, of detainees weren't transferred until, uh, 2002 was, was when the first group of detainees were brought from Afghanistan Mm -hmm. to, to Guantanamo. And, um, and at that point, you know, it was even trying to figure out so who were these who were these individuals? What had they really done? 
And if you'll remember, the administration had come out and they'd characterized um, these men as being the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. And there were the photographs released of um, these men in orange jumps uh, in orange jumpsuits, right, with uh, uh, you know kneeling with hoods and then being put in what uh, what were essentially these open air cages, yeah. right, um, and that. It responded in some sense on an emotional level to the sense that we had been attacked as a nation and this was part of the fight. Mm -hmm. We were, the uh, United States was taking the fight um, and defending our national security and that justified mm -hmm. this treatment. Um, at the same time, it, those images were incredibly shocking and disturbing. Right? If we think about um, the traditional laws of war, and the need to treat your enemy as you want your enemy to treat your own combatant, mm -hmm. right? That if those had been um, U.S. service members um, that had been treated by, uh, um, uh, who were being held by a foreign country, we would have been completely up in arms, yeah. right? The fact that we weren't um, was, was deeply disconcerting um, from a point of uh, rule of law, mm -hmm. right? Because... As you know, as a lawyer right, and an international lawyer, uh, the rule of law is the kind of primary tool that we have to um, enable a um, even-handed approach to the most severe mm -hmm. uh, human rights violations. Right, is to say that there are agreed upon rules and norms. Everyone follows it. It's in everyone's interest to do so. Mm. Right? Um, it is. It says something deeply disturbing about who we are as a nation if we, the United States, are able um, comfortably to erode those standards. Right? What does that say about us? Right. Now, at the time, that was not a popular position, right. Right? and um, it it wasn't until. Um, Abu Ghraib, really, when I think the American public stopped to consider, like, well, wait a minute, what really is being done in our name? Right? We, there still had not really been much known about what was going on in Guantanamo, right. but now news started to come out. Right? right? We see the images of Abu Ghraib. At that point, um, the U.S. Supreme Court um, hands down one of the first decisions that starts to say, well, what, actually, wait a minute, there are rules that start to apply here. Right. Um, and that then opens up this opportunity um, to then start to, to start to look deeper. There's more now, um, lawyers now are being able to um, represent um, those who are detained in Guantanamo mm -hmm. and to try and, and bring, shed the light of uh, shed light on that um, area of confinement mm -hmm. and say, like, well, what's really going on there? Who really is down yeah. there? Because remember, all we had was information at that point from the government. Right. right? Um, okay. So that's sort of just to kind of take us back sure. to that point in time of, you know, what was going on. Sure. So in the, in, the, in the clinic, we always have to ask ourselves, well, what is it that we can do? Uh, what can we contribute that's unique here? Right. Um, the Center for Constitutional Rights was really one of the first organizations that took the lead um, with a legal response to Guantanamo. Right? 
and they had filed. They ended up filing the Razul decision, mm-hmm. which, if you'll remember, that was the decision that said um, there is a there is the need for legal oversight. We um, this idea of habeas corpus, right? right. Show me the body. Right. You need to you United States government need to justify why you are detaining these individuals, right? right? And that was the legal vehicle that they used to do that. Um, they had so after Rasul decision came down, right? So the, in conjunction with Abu Ghraib, that started to open this up, right? When you had the court say, "Wait a minute, we need to take. We're able now to take a look at this." Um, they mobilized um, lawyers to then start to represent Guantanamo detainees, right? Once the Supreme Court had paved the way right. for that, so then you so and again things now start to kind of snowball. Are it was it's very difficult. Um, it's still difficult to get down to Guantanamo. I have not been able to visit Guantanamo. Um, the Department of Defense keeps a very um, uh, tight hold on, mm-hmm. on on who goes and who has access. Um, because we work within a law school uh, setting with students, I'm always trying to ask myself, what is it that we can do that's of great service and will be of an educational benefit to, to our students? In this particular context, it didn't strike me that um, it, w- it would provide the kind of opportunities that I thought would be best for students mm-hmm. to involve them in a um, representation of a single Guantanamo detainee. Other law schools have done that, so, yeah. um, but, I, uh, but I didn't feel that that was, that was where we could make the unique contribution. Mm-hmm. So we kept sort of looking for, so, so what is it, right? right. It sort of stood there, uh, as I say, as a human rights um, uh, uh, clinician, I couldn't, you know, no one was ignoring that that was happening. It was looking like, okay, so where, where is it can, that we can make right. a unique contribution? Um, so, so now we get through the first Bush administration. We are into the second Bush administration. Things are not going so well in Afghanistan. That kind of, um, you know, the blush is off the bloom here, and there's increasing criticism. There's an increasing awareness within the Bush administration um, that actually maybe these aren't all the worst of the worst. And now there's a public relations problem. Um, there is this sort of, sort of um, a bunch of detainees have been released. More information is coming out about it. People are talking. Right. Um, this doesn't quite seem to be as justified as it did. And there's um, news that the U- that the Bush administration is actually trying to um, shrink the population at Guantanamo um, because they realize that it's really not militarily justified and it's a huge kind of. PR, public relations kind of disaster. Um, the questions then starts to arise among lawyers for Guantanamo detainees. What happens next? Mm-hmm. Right? So we're going to push to get these detainees released, but then what happens to them? Um, at that point, I think that's a question that we can help answer. Mm-hmm. And we uh, link up with the Center for Constitutional Rights and our Human Rights Center here um, at Berkeley to start to um, really answer that question because there were no data about 
who actually, you know, we knew something about the men who were in Guantanamo. What happens after they get released? Right. And if the administration wants to shrink that population or to potentially, you know, close it, close it down um, substantially, then that's a question that deserves attention. Um, and as an academic, we were interested in, so how has Guantanamo actually affected all these men mm -hmm. um, who now have been released? So at that point, uh, so now we're in 2006, right? 2006, 2007. We decide that we're going to do this study and sort of answer that question to try and peel back the, uh, the seal on Guantanamo to look at what has what's ha what is that experience like from the perspective of those who have lived through it? Right. Because aside from what um, attorneys had been saying about their particular client, there hadn't been any um, generalization mm -hmm. about um, or, and looking at patterns mm -hmm. of experience. So we so because the Center for Constitutional Rights had this network of habeas attorneys, that enabled us to identify um, men who are willing to talk about their experiences. So this, so then we conducted, over the next two years, a study um, talking to, we ended up interviewing um, 62 former detainees um, in many countries. Uh, we interviewed former guards mm -hmm. at Guantanamo. We, we interviewed um, a uh, habeas attorneys for former detainees and um, uh, policymakers mm -hmm. across the board to try and get that try and get that picture and so from that um, we then produced the study and a sub subsequent book that mm -hmm. provided um, provided that snapshot and what we learned was both confirmed some things that I think that people thought, but we were able to put some both um, numbers on that and uh, and fill that in with a richer narrative, mm -hmm. right? So, first of all, like looking at you know how did all these guys actually get there, yeah, right? And there you see that a, that uh, much of it was just the wrong place at the wrong time. When the U.S. dropped these flyers down in Afghanistan that was offering essentially a bounty for um, Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Um, that essentially became carte blanche for very, very impoverished communities to turn over people who were, uh, who were either, they, to whom they owed no allegiance, mm -hmm. right? Like if you were a foreign national, you weren't part of their, that community. Um, and get $5,000. That is a lot of money. It's also became kind of convenient to get rid of, to resolve property disputes, right? Um, and so we had, you know, a number of, uh, of those that we interviewed um, describe the con their, their, their conditions as either being like, I was trying to get out of Af Afghanistan. And then, so a lot of them were, were caught in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Right, the Pakistanis that you know, and then turned over to Pakistani authorities, right, right? Um, uh, for bounty. Uh, you know that, that that's what they were. They were then told, they, you know, brought in. Oh, we're we're gonna house you for tonight, and then being turned over to U.S. forces, or people who said, you know, it was my, you know, it was my cousin, or it was my neighbor, 
And, um, and, and when I actually got out, then they apologized for this, right? So, so, so when these bounties were offered, did it literally just take the word of someone who was in a community going up to a U.S. officer and saying this person is questionable or, or a potential terrorist? Well, so that's certainly what the, from the detainee perspective, that, yeah. that's all that it was. In right. other words, there, there was, they were not given the opportunity to right. present evidence or had access to an advocate to say or have any kind of investigation that was done, right? I mean, right. they're turned over and then... Uh, you know, immediately they're in U.S. custody. They get transferred from one military base to another military base, and then they get into Guantanamo. Right. Right. So um, that's, you know, and then on the back end, right, so you might say, well, that you could be sort of skeptical about that. Well, that's just their story. Maybe they mm -hmm. really were. You know, mm -hmm. how do we really know? Well, the fact that all of these men that we inter that that were released were not released because of, as a result of a U.S. court order, right? They were all cleared for release. In other words, the, the U.S. military went through its own procedures and decided that they posed no risk, mm -hmm. right? And so without the benefit, without ever having been convicted of a crime um, or subject to court order to release them, the U.S. decides to release people. Mm. So... Right. So based on that, it would that the evidence would strongly suggest that these guys were not uh, were, were never posed a serious threat. Right. And then you have some pretty damning um, admissions right, that that's um, that's documented um, in, you know, we, we cite to it. It's documented in other work um, that talk about, uh, you know, quotes from U.S. official saying that. Most of these guys don't even deserve to be here, right? So, and now remember, what Guantanamo really is, is a, an interrogation facility, right. right? The point was, we, which is why it needed to be a law-free zone, because the laws of war put um, strict regulations on the conditions under which you can um, question captive combatants. So, so for many of these people who are detained and then are shipped to Guantanamo, they get on an airplane. They have no idea where they're going. They land in Cuba. And what happens to them? What's the story of after they get off the plane, after they get released into this prison, what's a day in the life of an average detainee look like? So that depends on what time you get, what time you're transferred in, right? In the early days, you're literally in this kind of outdoor kennel. Um, with uh, exposed to the elements, right? Completely open to the elements. So when it's raining in a tropical zone, you're getting rained on. Um, you you know with 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 rats and and other animals, you know, running through your um, running through literally running through your cage, um, and you're uh, with a bucket for a toilet and being fed, you know three times a day with pretty fetid, horrible water. Uh, you know, it's, it, that's not great. That gets a little better when they, uh, then you get upgraded to converted shipping containers. And there you have, so you, you're, uh, so then you have some protection, you have a roof over your head, right? It's still open to the front, mm -hmm. right? So you have no privacy. Um, and remember that, um, that, the vast majority 
of these men are um, observant practicing right. Muslims, right? right? Uh, where modesty is a um, is a is is kind of a, a strict cultural norm. So this idea that you are um, very exposed uh, is uh, you know creates tremendous distress mm. and stress. Um, now that those are those are just like the the facilities, and then right, and then things kind of improve a little more, and then you get you know, then, then you're getting solid cells, right? right. Um, on the other hand, you are also um, isolated, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's what comes with, um, as things get um, more regularized, right? What, what detainees will talk about is actually, be, Camp X-Ray was, was the open, open air, the, the first ones. You'll have detainees say, actually, you know what? I really didn't like being exposed to the elements, but we could all talk to each other. Yeah. We could see each other and we could talk to each other. When we get when um, we get moved in to these converted shipping containers, then all of a sudden we just have we have a mesh wire mesh in front of us that that um, and we're cut off. We can still we can shout to one another, right. but um, it starts them to feel isolated. Right. Um, so that that's just kind of the, the, the physical overlay. Um, were, were most of the detainee, the detainees waterboarded or tortured in some other way, other than just the horrendous conditions that they were placed in? So this is something um, that I think deserves some um, a little bit more of an explanation because certainly the issue of waterboarding is something that's captured the the press, and there right. are what are called the high value detainees. Right. And that's where you have allegations, um, you know, and admissions of, of who was waterboarded, right? Um, generally in black sites, um, um, not in not in Guantanamo, right? right. But before Elsewhere. they get, yeah, before yeah. they get, um, before they get to a Guantanamo. Now, what do we mean by torture under international law? Right. Not the U.S. interpretation of torture that um, that prevailed at some points in time during this uh, Guantanamo era, right? Um, you know, we've gone back and forth on that. Uh, currently, we're in a better uh, uh, better place on, on, on torture. Um, the, the idea of extreme, um, you know, infliction, or infliction of, uh, of extreme um, pain and suffering, right, is one, is torture. Also prohibited under international law, which the U.S. is is obligated itself to, is cruelty. So there's a spectrum mm -hmm. there. Um, a lot of the discussion has been like, what is or isn't torture, and ignored that there are also this. There is a whole range of behaviors which are also Ill, considered illegal cruelty. Um, the fact of um, so then, then you have to start looking at the practices. What practices are actually can be considered torture, mm -hmm. and what acts are considered cruelty? Mm -hmm. That's where we looked at the effects of the whole system of confinement at Guantanamo. Right. So we did not interview any person who who said that he was waterboarded. Mm -hmm. Right. We interviewed men 
who were subjected, everyone was subjected to just the standard procedures, which included short shackling, uh, which included um, being put in stress positions, um, which would force nudity, force shaving, um, these ways in which the conditions of, the, of confinement were just um, institutionalized humiliation. All of them. All of them. That's just what it meant to be in Guantanamo, right? So you'll talk, um, for example, you know, going to um, just being taken, you know, from your cell into interrogation, right? What what that experience was like of being short shackled, of then then being put into either a hot room or a cold room, um, being left for hours, then being interrogated, then being put back in your cell, right? The arbitrary um, punishments that were meted out by guards and what those would um, like, so that then you would be put into isolation, right? You could be put into isolation for up to thirty days for having possession your cell of. Uh, of unauthorized object, which could be as simple as um, an extra apple, right? That was in your cell, right? Then you're so that and then being in, in isolation for thirty days, that that in and of itself can exert over time what we call the cumulative mm -hmm. effect, right? So that you have to look not just at at what were the isolated interrogation or conditions of confinement and their impact on an individual, but look at what happens over time. Mm -hmm. And what psychologists and psychological studies of torture say is that that you can have the accumulative effect of all of those conditions which will push someone over the edge into, um, into, into the extent of, of experiencing the effects of uh, of extreme suffering and torture, right. right? It's just people, that's what sort of people feel when they get, quote, pushed beyond the breaking point. So that, it, um, and it's that experience of the cumulative effect that is um, is also a violation of our obligations for how we treat people under, you know, torture and illegal cruelty. With all of the what seemed like gross violations of international law that took place at Guantanamo. Where are we now? And have there been any reparations to the people who were there? And what's the future look like in terms of what's reasonable with regards to the existence of Guantanamo, its continuation in the future? It's a great question. Um, there's a lot there. Let me see what, <laughs> let me, let me see how I can answer that. The, you know, we're, we're in the twilight of the Obama administration. The U.S. is now being reviewed by the U.N. Um, Torture Committee um, to asking the U.S. how is it upholding its obligations under international law with regard, specifically with regard to torture. Um, and the committee is asking the United States exactly some of these questions. So what next are you going to provide as you should under international law an opportunity for individuals to be compensated mm -hmm. for the um, illegal torture and cruelty um, the so this is what the obama administration needs to respond to um, so far they have elided an answer um, and what is possible and um, so 
legally it's required, whether the U.S. is going to recognize that um, and act on it, I think is very is still very much an open question. Um, I think that this kind of international review and scrutiny serves to remind the Obama administration of the promise that uh, the president made on his first day of office to close Guantanamo has not been met, and that you know remember this is a president who was elected on in part on his pledge that he was going to do things differently, that he was going to restore the U.S. to its um, rightful, um, prestigious place within the community of nations as a leader in, uh, in, value, in, in values of, of, human, of human dignity and, um, uh, and more cooperative relations. So... I think that the Obama administration has been has been stymied in part by Congress and Congress's intransigence. Um, I think that the Obama administration has wanted to do more in terms of shrinking the Guantanamo population, but it is not clear that um, that the administration really has an end game here, um, other than keeping. Um, permanently or indefinitely detained a smaller number of uh, high-value detainees. In addition, there's uh, about a, uh, about 120 um, de- uh, other detainees in, in Guantanamo no. that have been cleared for release ah. that cannot be placed. Most of them are from Yemen. Hmm. Um, and I think that continues to be a blight on the U.S.'s pledge for as being a nation that abides by uh, the rule of law. So where we're going from here, it's not entirely clear for me. I think the Obama administration can do more. Um, I think that it should um, it should live up to its promises to lead with American values, which include saying that when we have made a mistake, when we have um, mistreated those um, that we, uh, um, to whom we have made an obligation not to mistreat, that we need to make amends. Mm-hmm. Um, that day is still waiting. Well, Laurel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to the listeners about Guantanamo. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. Thank you.